Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. What we need to do is just change where the money's coming from, change who makes the decisions. Like the leadership has had some serious problems, but down in its heart, you know, this is a Harry Truman party. This is a party that has stood up for working people for generations, and we can still do that. Like it still has a chance. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Lucas Kuntz, a Marine Corps veteran running to fill Missouri's vacant Senate seat in 2022. Lucas served tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and eventually went on to become an international negotiations officer at the Pentagon. He's now running a campaign that focuses on taking power out of the hands of corporate monopolies and putting it back in the hands of working people. Lucas, welcome to Burn the Boats. Hey, thanks for having me, Ken. I'm excited to be here. Gonna be fun. Great to have you. Uh, I have been to Missouri, though. I've even, believe it or not, been to political rallies there. Um, Stop it. And and it's pretty <laughs> red. Uh, what are you thinking, man? <laughs> no, man, this is where it's at. Look, we're gonna meet people where they're at. You know, here's the thing: Missouri has done some surprising things on that side of the house. You know, just over the last several years, we've passed four ballot measures that most people would consider progressive, or in my case, I consider them populist. You know, we raised the minimum wage five bucks above the federal level, passed medical marijuana, uh, fought back right to work, you know, the anti-union stuff, like 68 to 32. And, uh, and you know, that's where Missouri's at. You just uh, threw- Expanded uh, Medicaid, too. Yeah. Well, good, good. I'm, I'm for all that. But you dropped in a, a word there that I think- scares a few people, populist. Um, right before our interview, we talked to Senator Heidkamp, who I think has some similar feelings on this. She said that it was Donald Trump who gave populism a bad name. What's your relationship uh, with uh, with populism? I mean, I think it's fakers that gave it a bad name. You know, populism is about fundamentally changing who has power in the country so that the country's not run by, you know, a cobble of corporate elites, corporate monopolies, whatever you want to call it, like the people who are buying off our politicians and stripping our communities for parts, which, I mean, you see all around Missouri. I'm sure you see it all around her state, too. And uh, and what you've got instead is a bunch of fakers who come in and, uh, you know, they divide people as populists based on race, religion, whatever else, for their own power, right, for their own prestige so that they can be in positions and they never actually do anything to change who has power in the country. They still take money from the wrong people. They still vote for, you know, every corporate judge that comes in front of them. Uh, they still do every single thing they can to make the system work for them rather than the the normal everyday people, which is what populism is supposed to be. I mean, Harry, Harry Truman's house, you can see it out my bathroom window, like, well, in the winter anyways. But like, there's a populist for you, like trying to actually change who has power, trying to, trying to, you know, make it so normal everyday people are back in the game. Is this distinction for you then around weaponizing populism to divide people, to divide citizens against each other? I mean, you could phrase it like that. I really think it's about being a faker, 
I mean, anybody can say that they're anything, right? And you got to judge somebody by their actions, not their words. And if someone's not doing everything to change who has power, like if you're not for increasing the minimum wage, how the hell are you a populist? Like you're not trying to make things better for everyday people. That's exactly what it's about. If you're not trying to abolish corporate PACs, which is one of the things I want to do, then how are you a populist? Like all you're doing is trying to keep a system in place that hurts everyone. If you're appointing Gary Cohn, the president of of Goldman Sachs to run the economy? Like, how are you a populist? You're not. You're just a faker. How has your campaign been received by the the big D Democratic establishment, uh, given this populist theme? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't gotten a reaction really either way on that. Uh, they've been very impressed with our campaign because uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, actually just quick backstory. Like um, when I had decided to do this, you know, I wanted to owe nobody except the people who helped my family out when I was a kid in our old neighborhood in Jeff City, uh, which is in Missouri. And uh, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to run this campaign and I'm not going to take any money from from corporate PACs. I'm not going to take any money from federal lobbyists. I'm not going to take any money from fossil fuel executives. I'm not going to take any money from big pharma executives because these are the people who have been stripping our communities for parts. Like, first of all, how does every politician, all 535 of them, run on reducing prescription drug prices and it still never happens, right? And so, so I, you know, I went around, I, I tried to build a team on, you know, or telling people, you know, I'm going to do this race clean so that I can make decisions based on, uh, just everyday people. And everybody said, no, no, you can't do that. Like, that's stupid. You're just cutting yourself off at the knees, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I decided to do it anyway. And so far, we've raised $2 million. Last quarter, I outraised every single Republican who's in the race and obviously everyone in the race. And uh, and we did that all with the highest percentage of grassroots donations of anybody in the country, you know, more than Bernie Sanders, more than Elizabeth Warren, more than anybody else. And so so what they have seen from our campaign and what we've gotten a lot of comment on is like, wow, you guys are doing this with that message. You're it's obviously resonating. You're meeting people where they're at and uh, and they see something there. I don't know if they've grasped, like put their arms around it and figured it out exactly yet, but they see that what we're doing is something real uh, and that hopefully it can be lasting. But you've still got one heck of an uphill battle, fundraising notwithstanding. You're running as a Democrat, and you talk to a lot of Missourians who say the brand there is just toxic. How do you overcome that? We got to recognize, first of all, that like the Democratic Party kind of went the way of Wall Street and big tech for a while there. You know, Dem leadership, the leadership of our party decided that we want to compete on this big money game. We're going to start making decisions for Wall Street. We're going to start making decisions for big tech. We're going to take that money and that's how we're going to compete. And that was a failed decision. It didn't work like like people around the country are rejecting the, what you just call the toxic democratic brand kind of over and over again when it's tied to that corporate power. And so, so I mean... Here, what we're doing in Missouri is we're doing a, just a completely different message, right? And a, running a completely different campaign. Like I said, 100% grassroots. We are running uh, to fundamentally change who has power in the country. And that's what everybody in Missouri wants. Like the system is broken. Everyone here knows it. They want to change it. We've been trying to change it through ballot measures, right? Those pass over and over again. And so we're going to just talk about the corruption in our system and actually investing here in America again. Like that's another thing that you see um, – 
with all these politicians, Democrat or Republican, like they were all cool with spending $6.4 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Like we watched them do that. We were there on the ground, like seeing them spend all of this money. I mean, I remember watching them in Afghanistan build, it was like a $25 million building that no one ever went into. Not the Taliban, not the Americans, uh, not our partnered force in the middle of Helmand. It was just a complete waste. And so you see these politicians willing to do that, never question it. And then when it comes time to, you know, invest here in America, to spend like a single nickel here in America, they squabble over every penny. They fight, they kick, they scream, you know, unless it's a tax break for, you know, the people who are controlling the system, of course. Uh, that's usually bipartisan. Uh, but everything else isn't. And so what people want to see is they want to see investment here in their country, in their neighborhoods, in this state that's been left behind. I'm glad you brought up Afghanistan. Uh, give us a little bit of your service backstory. You spent time on the ground, uh, OEF and OIF, right? Yeah, yeah. So in, so in Iraq, I led a police training team around uh, Habani and Fallujah area, uh, you know, running escort missions, running convoys, uh, had a team of 12 Marines, Navy corpsmen, and we, you know, went around trying to train the Iraqi police to, I don't know, make that country more secure. I'm uh, pretty sure they all got overrun a little a couple years later by ISIS. And then uh, and then in, in Afghanistan, I actually learned Pashto. Uh, so I was, and you know, I was a foreign affairs officer. I'd interview Taliban. I would do legal work. I'm a lawyer too. And, uh, you know, went through a lot of Afghan prisons uh, trying to make, make them acceptable for human rights conditions and things like that. And uh, I was on a special operations task force each time. Uh, so, you know, there were other missions and stuff going on too. But, um, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, I thought Iraq was dumb when we did it. I joined because I wanted to serve my community and I really felt, you know, I bought this line that Afghanistan was like the real deal, right? Like what we're doing there is real and lasting. I believed, you know, our, our politicians. I believed our military leadership. I believed I believed this this institution, uh, that, that that was a real thing, that we should be doing it and that it was the right thing. And, uh, you know, I got there. And I remember just like interviewing the first Taliban guy I talked to and then, you know, seeing the resolve, uh, seeing what they were doing. I remember working with an Afghan partnered force, seeing where that went. It was basically just a jobs program, you know, so that they wouldn't join the Taliban. And just, you know, I, I did winter 2012-13 there and then I did most of the year 2014 there. And you know, 2014, my entire job was to make sure that our partnered force, which was an Afghan special operations force, so like one of the higher speed ones, still got all their ammo, all their equipment, all their food and everything like that. And so like, I really realized that we've been lied to. Like this place is, it's not gonna work out. They still can't do this after 13 years. The irony that I see is that US troops were almost like a training ground for the Taliban, right? I mean, they spent 20 years refining their skills, practicing against the best in the world. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that that place fell basically immediately. I mean, after I don't, I don't yeah, after after we left, like well, after six point four trillion dollars spent, after six point four trillion dollars, thousands spent, no, of lives lost. Yeah, and you know what? The, the only good that did was, I well, it's not good, obviously, but the only people who who uh, benefited from that was rich Afghans and and you know corrupt Americans. Well, corrupt Afghans too. How do you keep your campaign from becoming a? a grievance-driven campaign, given that there is a hell of a lot to be pissed off about. And it, it, it comes across in in how you talk, uh, in how you 
you frame issues. Afghanistan's a great example. You're right. We were lied to. We wasted so much there, not just in terms of the trillions of dollars, but, you know, lost buddies. Um, yeah, 2,500 bucks, <laughs> two of them on my last deployment. It's yeah, I, I believe it. I mean, I, I I have similar stories, and it's easy to stay pissed off. Um, is that okay with you, or do you see the risks in a grievance-driven campaign, given what we've you know experienced the last <laughs> five years? Well, the good thing is that if you want to actually do something, like grievances uh, are an opening, right? I mean, we're talking about this is it. Like, if we can spend. trillion supposedly building up these other nations, then we can spend money right here in America, right? We can invest in production. It's just going to create good jobs. I mean, we can, if we can print $120 billion every single month, month after month after month after month, and give it to Wall Street to juice the stock market, then we can print $120 billion a month and we can, or, you know, whatever it takes to build semiconductor fabrication facilities in here. Like, like our failure today is a grievance for someone else in 20 years. Like, let's talk about another potential war, like Taiwan. I keep reading stuff all the time how we have to defend Taiwan at all costs. You know what that's based on, right? It's based on the fact that Taiwan has a monopoly on semiconductor production. And if we don't defend it at all costs, then uh, essentially our entire economy is going to shut down. And like, as a military leader, uh, do you ever want to be in a position where you have to defend something at all costs? No, that's the worst situation you can be in, right? Like, let's tease this out. Like, where yeah. is the line for you? You're clearly skeptical of a foreign intervention, but what lessons do you draw from our history, both from our tendency to overreach and our occasional um, failures to stand up to to tyranny? Uh, our history of appeasement. I mean, you're looking at Ukraine now. You just mentioned Taiwan. Surely there is a cost threshold for you. It's you're willing to risk something uh, to stand up to dictators. So for me, what I want first is I want decision making space. And so, like right now with Taiwan, there is no decision making space, right? Like it will literally shut down our entire economy. I mean, we would tell just just the small supply chain disruption we've seen in semiconductors shut down automobile manufacturing, medical device manufacturing, and a bunch of other stuff here. And so, so what I see is a situation where what it would be better to do is we're supplying Taiwan with arms, we're selling them arms, we're giving them military know-how. In return, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation should be teaching us how to do semiconductor manufacturing. We should be investing in semiconductor fabrication here so that we can reshore some of that, bring those good jobs back, bring the capacity back, reduce the stress on the supply chains, and give ourselves space to actually make a decision based on you know geopolitics or whatever else, rather than the fact that we have no choice with Taiwan. And so uh, when we talk about Ukraine, like it's interesting, so I didn't mention this before, but after uh, Marine Special Operations Command, uh, being the judge advocate there, I uh, went to Columbia Law School for a year. The Marine Corps sent me there to get an international law deal so that I could do U.S. arms control negotiations with Russia, essentially. So I went down to the Pentagon, the joint staff after that, and I oversaw our country's compliance with our treaty agreements in Europe. And I went and like negotiated with NATO allies and with Russia on uh, conventional arms on Ukraine and all that stuff. So one of the things that I saw, though, is like we would go to NATO and we would try to get these NATO allies on board with taking a harder position on Russia and doing other things. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And finally, we figured out that one of the reasons for that or the reason is that 
they love that cheaper Russian uh, natural gas, right? And so we have this twisted situation where Western Europe is funding Russia's nuclear modernization program. They're funding their misadventures in Ukraine. They're funding their adventures in Syria. They're funding their military modernization uh, by buying all their gas. And then the United States is covering the defense bill, sending more troops over there, uh, doing more work on missile defense, you know, and, and everything else. And, uh, and it's this twisted situation where they get cheap gas and then we pay for it by increasing our defense uh, posture. And so we can argue about that all day. Oh, maybe they should pay more, et cetera, et cetera. But what we could really do here, like we have a, a clean situation where we could just invest in actually like renewable energy production here in America. How about in the Midwest? Like instead of putting the money into that defense stuff, we put it here, we build renewable energy production, even if it costs more than something else, we export it there, even if it's subsidized, and we really just cut the feet out from under Russia so that they don't have the money or the capacity to do this anymore because we get uh, Western Europe wholly renewable and they don't, they're not interested in that gas anymore. And so like, it's a situation where if we spent our money differently, we would give ourselves a lot more you know, freedom of decision. We would create good jobs here. We would save the planet at the same time and everything else. But we're just not, you know, we don't have that vision at a high level. If we were starting with a clean slate, we could give ourselves that decision freedom. But we're dealing with the legacy of decades or more of bad decisions. And, you know, it might come to um, to a point where we have to stand up to defend the little guy. Where do you stand on that, especially as a, as a war vet? I have seen that used so many times in a way that, uh, that doesn't make sense that I'm very skeptical of anyone who wants to do that. We have our NATO alliance. Like if the little guy is a NATO ally, then we fulfill our Article 5 uh, obligation and we defend them. Absolutely. If it's not a NATO ally, then we should use the tools of diplomacy and everything else. We should see if there's a coalition that that wants to do what we want to do. I mean, we ended up in Iraq, you know, coalition free, basically. I know we claimed one, but it was a pretty weak one, us in the UK. And uh, and we need to make sure that that that's real. I mean, I am not for going to war over Ukraine. Bears mentioning, I think, that the only time Article 5 has ever been uh, invoked was, well, you probably know. Yeah, it was Afghanistan. Yeah, it was to defend us. It was our NATO allies allies coming to, to our aid. Um, I mean, that's an alliance. Article 5, I, I mean, we're there on that. So if the little guy is, you know, Lithuania, Estonia, yeah, absolutely. You've said that Wall Street, and I'm using your words, has sold out our men and women in uniform. Uh, can you elaborate? Yeah, so the context for that is, you know, September 11th happened. Uh, Wall Street was one of the targets, you know, America's financial center, plus the Pentagon and then the White House, although that one didn't end up happening. And, uh, you know, in the wake of that, we all as Americans came together. We stood behind that institution. Uh, and in the days immediately afterward, the CEOs of a, a bunch of those financial companies uh, saw that as a good grab and go opportunity to actually uh, give their leadership uh, a bunch of shares that were undercosted, uh, so that they'd make a lot of money. And then over the ensuing decade, while many of us signed up, went to war based on what happened to them, uh, they spent that decade selling us out. They spent that decade ruining our our housing market. Uh, you know, when I got back from Iraq the first time, 
I had Marine after Marine and sailor after sailor come into my office, say, while I was deployed, these banks violated my service member civil relief act. They foreclosed on me illegally. They did this, they did that, all in violation of the law. There's nothing I can do. Please help me. I don't understand why this is happening. Didn't we just bail these people out? And because, you know, it was right after we'd done the Wall Street bailout. And uh, and yes, that was the case. They were, you know, these big banks, government just bailed them out and they're foreclosing on the service members who signed up to defend them uh, illegally. And so to me, like like these guys just over and over again made decisions that worked for their quarterly earnings report rather than anything else. And so, uh, you know, whether that's making sure that we did ship our semiconductor manufacturing overseas, whether it's, you know, a hedge fund, uh, a guy named Archie Cox Jr. actually is the person who made it so that we don't make rare earth magnets here in America anymore. Uh, Hedge funds came in and they destroyed business arm after business arm that the defense, um, what would you say, the defense funding mechanisms, because it's not just DARPA, like created. And we had CEO after CEO. Uh, There's one called iRobot. I mean, everybody knows them now for making the Roomba. You know, they got a lot of money from the defense industry to make robots that defended or or sniffed out bombs. And uh, a hedge fund manager came in and said, you know what? Uh, You shouldn't be working with the government anymore. You should be focused on a monopoly position because that's going to bring the most to shareholders. The leaders of that company said, no, we we really want to work with defense still. That's how we got started. That's who invested us in initially. Uh, It's good for the long term. And this hedge fund guy said, no, well, you need to do what's good for the short term, uh, did a shareholder activist agenda and destroyed their defense business. And now they make everything in China. Like, so you see over and over again, Wall Street executives put their own profits before the country. And, you know, they're really, they're really willing to sell out to anybody. And, and the saddest thing about that is that China has figured it out. Like Chinese leadership has figured it out. They have figured out that if they just show Wall Street bankers, if they just show some of these executives, these private equity guys, if they just show them a quarterly profit or a better earnings report, they will literally sell the keys to the American castle overseas uh, in order to get that. Is is the solution to appeal to the patriotism of Wall Street then, or I, I assume you've got a more sophisticated approach? Yeah, that would be a dream, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> hey, guys, <laughs> remember how we're all dying over here for you? Or remember how? No, no, that's not it. I mean, what we need to do is uh, we need to put mechanisms in place that make that not possible. And we really need to break the link between their money and politics. And so you see that here in Missouri too, for example. And so, uh, you know, the thing that comes up in Missouri a lot is, uh, are you familiar with the company Smithfield? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I've heard you talk about it. The pork producer? That's right. They do about 25% of America's pork production. And uh, they're a huge, huge entity here in Missouri. Um, Their predecessors essentially like monopolized the hog industry here, killed 90% of Missouri's uh, hog farmers in a generation. Obviously not the hog farmers themselves, but their farms. And so they consolidated all this. And then in 2013, they wanted to sell out to a Chinese conglomerate. Uh, But Missouri had a law in the books that said uh, Missouri farmland, Missouri agricultural land can't be owned by foreign entities. And so what Smithfield did was they came in, they gave a bunch of money to Democrats and Republicans uh, in the state. And the the state legislature quietly changed the law so that foreign companies could now own land in Missouri. And Smithfield was immediately purchased by the Chinese conglomerate. And now, you know, 25% of America's pork production and a lot of the concentrated animal feed operations here in Missouri, uh, massive proportion and and hog production, you know, the profits go overseas to China. We have no control over that and everything else. And so it's really the link between 
Wall Street money, big business money, monopoly money. Smithfield is a monopolist and our political class uh, that are causing us the most problems in this realm. So we really need to break that. Like we need to abolish corporate PACs altogether. We need to make it so that when someone lobbies for something, it gets registered for it gets registered, logged somewhere. You know, when when politicians don't write a law, but a lobbyist writes it for them, it should have credits on that. Right. So we know who's doing it, at least. And, uh, and we really need to break the link between the money and so that it doesn't happen anymore. I see what's happening to small towns across Ohio and come mm-hmm. to the same conclusions. But, you know, I also hear the, <laughs> the, the hedge fund guy saying, but stuff is cheaper, right? And then I see all my neighbors driving right past the mom and pop store and shopping it at Walmart. How do you make an economic argument for the value of Main Street? So this is it. Many things aren't actually cheaper. You know, maybe your Nerf gun's cheaper. Got it. You know, stuff like that. But when you look at things like rare earth elements, when you look at things like semiconductors, it's cheaper for Wall Street, right? It's cheaper for these executives. Uh, When iRobot moves overseas, it's cheaper for them, but it's not cheaper for our country. Like our country pays a massive tax for that. Like we pay in supply chains that are weak. We pay in the fact that we might have to go to war over Taiwan for semiconductors. Like we pay in a defense budget that's greatly outsized. We pay in defending these supply chains. We pay in reliance on a potential hostile actor who's currently very much an adversary. Like we pay in many, many ways. We pay in communities that have been destroyed. We pay in, you know, schools where kids can only go to school four days a week and where they don't go to school when it's too hot or it's too cold, right? We pay in many, many ways. It's not actually cheaper for America to be doing that. And so, you know, there are all sorts of national security implications. There are all sorts of educational, like everything else implication. There are all the externalities that go along with it. And so it's just like pollution, right? Like these are the same people who for many years were like, well, you know what? It's cheaper to have a coal-fired plant with no environmental protections than to have a coal-fired plant with environmental protections, right? Of course it is to them, but it's not cheaper to society. And so what we need to do as a society, we need to realize, like, this is what China has seen. Chinese government has realized that if they put it into nickels and dollars for Wall Street, we will make it uh, much more expensive for ourselves and much cheaper for them than developing things for themselves. Like, look at how much intellectual property they've gotten over the last couple decades by convincing American firms that they need access to the markets in China, going over there and then requiring them to give up all their intellectual property. Like that, there's a real cost to that, but it's not on the balance sheet of these companies. And so it's really like, you know, I wrote a whole article on this called the China hack, where China has figured out how to hack our capitalism, how to hack Wall Street so that they can get all of these things for much cheaper and uh, and make the cost for the average American um that's invisible in the pocketbook, um, very heavy. And so like what we need to do is we need to start capturing those externalities. We need to really divide. And it's not that people don't see them. It's that these corporations, Wall Street, everybody else, they have so much power over our politics that the stuff just gets buried. I mean, they have power over academia too. I mean, they fund all this stuff. You know, I work at a nonprofit called American Economic Liberties Project. And uh, here's a good example, right? The reason it exists is because uh, the people who work there used to work at a different think tank that was funded by Google. And we were talking about how Google has a monopoly and how, when I say we, it wasn't me, I was still in the military, but they were talking about Google's monopoly and everything else. And, uh, 
And Google said, you know, we're going to cut the funding to this think tank if you keep saying bad things about us. And so that's that's where we're at right now. I mean, look at Hollywood. When was the last time Hollywood did a negative film on China? Well, they just censored Tom Cruise's jacket on Top Gun because it had a flag of Taiwan. Um, so, yeah, it's real. Yeah, they are they are bowing down uh, to, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, to China on this. Everybody is. And so, like, again, China's hacked American capitalism. And until we do something to defend ourselves on that ground, uh, we're going to be in really big trouble. When you talk about capturing those externalities, I take it that you mean going well beyond by American PR campaigns, we need we need legislation. Yeah, I mean, like, CFIUS with teeth. I mean, legislation to make it so that they can't own uh, land here. I mean, harder export controls. I mean, like, actually reshoring things here. So, you know, investing in semiconductor fabs and other things like that so that we actually have them here. I mean, you know, there, there are so many... Th- there's a there's a company in Minnesota right now that's trying to rather than do rare earth minerals, they're making a a magnet that can take the place of rare earth magnets that is based on nitrogen and iron. And you know we need to invest in that type of innovation. Like what I see a lot of people saying is like, oh, we need monopolies because we need to compete with China. It's like we are never going to compete with China on size, right? Like we have to innovate. We have to have competition here. Like I'm a I guess I sound like a raving capitalist, but I basically am. Like our advantage is marketplace competition, and we need to make sure that that competition uh, benefits us, and that the fruits of that competition isn't just immediately shipped over to China. So we need to protect ourselves um, in the economic sphere, uh, and part of that is creating competition, and the other part is making sure that the fruits of that competition uh, don't just float away. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Can you talk about the impact of that consolidation and that offshoring? Um, What's the ground truth? I'm trying to to get at this idea that 
you're not just adopting this as uh, as effective messaging. I mean, you grew up in Jeff City. You've seen what's happened to Main Street uh, at because of what Wall Street has been doing in terms of prioritizing short-term gains. Um, what do you see at home? Yeah, I mean, agricultural consolidation has killed almost every single small town in Missouri. And it's killed these communities because, you know, back when you had family farmers, which we still have some of, but it's getting harder and harder to do that every year. You know, family farmers, they, they work with their neighbors. They see the people who they're selling their food to. They take care of the land. They buy everything that they use locally. So you have an entire supply chain that's local. Uh, you know, the wealth stays in the community. It doesn't go away. When you get consolidated agriculture, whether it's Smithfield, Tyson, whatever else, what they do is they create what's, you know, what's called a vertically integrated supply chain. They only su- they buy everything, you know, the feed, the equipment, whatever else. They have contractors come in to actually do build outs, everything from out of the state, out of the community. And so what you see is that all the wealth that's coming from the land in a place like Missouri just gets sucked out to their supply chain. And so it doesn't stay here. It doesn't go back into the community. Uh, it doesn't get respent here. It kills the tax base. You know, a bunch of our rural schools now only go to school four days a week. And any time that the, that the temperature outside gets too hot or it gets too cold, they actually shut down the school because they're trying to save money on utility bills. It's madness because like everything has just been sucked out of these communities. And so, uh, I mean, that's where we truly need to invest right here in middle America. Again, it's why you see people who are so upset. Um, you know, when you talk about local grocers now, a lot of, a lot of places, you know, the local, local grocer is gone. You only have dollar general stores. And so, I mean, I can give you a personal example for that. When I was growing up uh, in Jeff City on Dunklin Street, you know, we had a local grocer on the corner. It was the Rackers family. And um, when a family couldn't make it till the end of the month, um, like mine often did, we could go there, we could write a check, and he wouldn't cash it till the end of the month because he knew that we were good for it and it was a community. And actually, the other grocery store uh, right across the highway would do the same thing. Uh, Well, they're both gone now. And, you know, where do you go now? You go to a big grocery store, you go to Walmart, right? And I can tell you right now, or you go to a Dollar General, I mean, like a Save-A-Lot type situation. Those people aren't going to do that for you. They don't have the capacity or they don't have like the freedom of decision to do that for you. It's just really sad to see the way that the community can't take care of itself anymore because massive corporations have taken in and they've taken over and nothing's local anymore. And so like now, what are you getting if you can't make it through the month, right? You're getting a payday loan. It's payday loans shouldn't even exist, like 300, 600% interest. Come on. The only reason that exists is because some private equity guys or someone else who thought they could just, you know, squeeze everybody at the lower level just a little bit more. They created that. They sold our politicians on it, gave them campaign donations to make something like that possible. And like, you know, my family went bankrupt once from medical bills uh, when I was younger. And I can tell you right now, if we had had to get a payday loan, near the end of the month every time, we would have gone bankrupt a whole lot more than one time. And like the people who suffer from that is everyday people. It's the community. You know, you're not able to take care of your neighbor uh, when you don't have enough money or capacity to take care of yourself. And that's what it's doing all across the Midwest. You know, we're losing jobs. We're losing opportunity. We're losing the ability to take care of each other. And uh, when the community starts to go, telling you what, man, rage is what follows. Wow. Um, I didn't think you'd... uh You'd land on that, but you're right. That that rage has had some pretty terrifying outlets of late. Um, sounds like you sympathize. Yeah, and people take advantage of that, right? And that's the opportunity for fakers to come in and say, you know, you're being lied to. I mean, let's let's talk about Afghanistan. Like, who was telling us for 20 years 
you know, give us your $6.4 trillion. Give us your sons and daughters. Like, this is worth it. We're building something real and lasting here, right? It was the institutions, systematic institutional dishonesty, all the way up, Democrat and Republican at the very highest levels in the military, everything else. And like, people see for themselves that that was all a lie now, right? Like that shit collapsed, excuse me, that collapsed in two weeks, like two weeks. You know, what the elite, what these supposed professional experts built collapsed in two weeks after telling us that that was worth it. Like, why would anyone believe anything anymore? And so that's a more recent example, but there are examples over the last, you know, couple decades. I mean, we bailed out Wall Street and then everybody got foreclosed on, right? They told us that the housing market had recovered. I remember that. Like, my dad was trying to sell our house for two years when everyone was saying the housing market had recovered down in Jeff City. And you know what? He got $43,000 out for it after two years and owed way, way more than that. Like, the housing market had not recovered. What people were saying worked did not work for everyone. It didn't work for people in the Midwest. You know, jobs were disappearing. And it's just like, like, what do you believe anymore when the institutions have been lying so much? You don't believe anything, and now, you know— it's just ripe territory for these fakers to come in and just peddle whatever crap they want to. And, uh, and people just don't know. They don't know what to believe anymore. It's terrifying. You're pretty consistent in casting blame on both sides. But you were running as a Democrat. What makes you a Democrat? Yeah, this is the party of working people. It needs to be the party of working people. Again, there has to be a party for working people, for normal, everyday people. And this is the one that can do it. And so, like, what we need to do is just change where the money's coming from, change who makes the decisions. Like, the leadership has had some serious problems. But down at its heart, you know, this is a Harry Truman party. This is a party that has stood up for working people for generations. And we can still do that. Like, it still has a chance. And so that's where we need to be. That's why I'm running as a Democrat. How do you diagnose what is going on on the right? Because I I would submit that it's more than just a handful of fakers. There is something systematic and psychic happening um, to American conservatism and the power that Trumpism has over it now. Do you share that concern or do you think this is passing? I mean, when I go a lot around the state of Missouri, whether it's, you know, in Palmyra you know, at a family farm, whether it's down in the boot heel, you know, St. Louis, even out in St. Joe, like, it's interesting, because I don't see that much difference between Republicans and Democrats, like on the ground, as far as what they feel, it's the system is broken, it's not working for me, it's a bunch of corruption, like, everybody's just corrupt. And so, I mean, the problem for the Democratic Party in that situation is like, we're not standing for working people the same way we used to. We have gone Wall Street. I don't, shouldn't say we, because I haven't, but but the party leadership has gone Wall Street and big tech. And so, you know, they're left deciding on alternative issues. And so, um, like, when I see, I see problems with leadership on both sides, but like, when I see normal everyday people, I'm, I'm not seeing the fakers. I'm not seeing the the dishonesty. I'm not seeing, you know, I, I'm seeing people who don't know what to believe anymore and who are, who are being taken advantage of by a party that is lying to them in many ways. But I mean, I guess maybe the best example I can give on this is, is kind of related to COVID actually. I was uh, going around the state, uh, this was a little while ago, and I met this woman named Candy. And as it frequently does, you know, Candy brought up, uh, or I don't remember how COVID came, comes up and Candy's like, you know what? Uh, I should probably tell you this, although I've been considering getting vaccinated, uh, I haven't done it yet. 
And uh, Candy is not your traditional Republican, but she's a conservative voter. And I'm like, oh, okay, Candy. Well, uh, you know, why, uh, why, if you're considering it, have you not gotten vaccinated? And she's like, well, you know, I'm just really concerned about what those nanobots would do to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. Like, <laughs> all right, like Candy's just out there. Like, I'm just going to try to wrap up this conversation and move on. But Candy starts talking about other stuff. She's going into corruption. She's talking about how her current senator, Roy Blunt, how much she hates him because all his family's corporate lobbyists, how they've been selling out Missouri, all this other stuff. And I'm like, damn, like Candy's singing my song right here. This is crazy. And she's she's bashing the right Republicans on this. And uh, and so we talk for about it for a while. She's, you know, she's talking about Wall Street. She's talking about big check intruding in lives, taking control. I'm like, actually, like, like Candy seems to have it pretty well together on a lot of these issues. And I'm like, so, so Candy, like, and she knows I'm messing with her at this point. I'm like, Candy, like, why would somebody even consider getting a vaccine if they think it's got nanobots in it? And she kind of sobers up a little bit and because uh, we were having a fun conversation. And she's like, well, actually, you know, I wasn't considering it. But uh, my brother just died from COVID last week. And so, of course, I'm like, oh, man, Candy, I'm so sorry. I hope you and the family are doing okay. Uh, let me know if there's anything I can do. She's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. That's why I'm considerate, though. And, uh, and then she's like, but, you know, I, I didn't bring it up before, even though I kind of wanted to. But now that it's out there, like, I just wanted to tell you how nice it's been talking to you because... You know, my brother was a veteran, just like you are. And, you know, you remind me of him in many ways. You grew up around here. And it's just, you know, it's it's been nice talking to someone that reminds me of him. I'm like, that's, thank you, Candy. And uh, and she says, she says, you know, I just want to let you know that I've been going through his house this last week. And I've decided to donate everything that he has to the Disabled American Veterans Charity in his honor. It's like, yeah, Candy, you know what? That's beautiful. Thank you uh, from all veterans. Like, I'm sure he would be very honored by that. It's an incredible thing to do. And uh, and I just like, I just can't quite let it go. And I'm like, you know, Candy, I think there's one other thing you could do in his honor, right? Like, you could go get the vaccine. And I know you're worried about it. But like, I can tell you right now, I was doing acquisitions in the Pentagon just last year. We put a lot of money into this vaccine, and we've been, all been excited to get it. I can tell you right now, none of us would be interested in getting a vaccine that had nanobots in it. Like, it's safe. It's going to be okay. She just says, thank you. Like, I have been wanting to hear that from someone since my brother died, but there's just so much out there, I don't know what to believe anymore. And so, I mean, that's the situation we're in right now, right? Where there's, it just goes back to the institutional systematic dishonesty that has let these liars just lie about whatever they want and really twist people's minds and twist their heads around when they're good people. Like Candy's a good person. She understands that the system's broken. She's donating, for God's sake, everything her brother had to the Disabled American Veterans Charity. Like, like these are good people. She's a good person. And she's in a place where she doesn't know what to believe anymore. And so like, like I feel my responsibility is to be that person that people can trust. Like to talk about Afghanistan, to talk about how, yes, we were all lied to, you know, to talk about how the system is wrong, but the way to fix it is not by dividing us based on, you know, race, religion, whatever else, but actually empowering normal everyday people to fundamentally change who has power in the country. And so, I mean, I really think that's where we're at. Like people, we have to meet people where they're at and we have to offer something as well. And I don't think that a lot of people are offering anything right now. Do you really think you can break through, given that, you know, that one conversation might have pulled one voter over, but you can't do that millions of times 
and the people you have to persuade are getting their their information through such stovepiped channels that it, it's likely going to overwhelm whatever truths you can convey. Yeah, you know what? I don't discount the people of Missouri. And I say that, you know, in 2016, when uh, Donald Trump carried the state by 17 points, uh, Jason Kander running against Roy Blunt, a corrupt guy uh, whose family is all lobbyists, as Candy pointed out, uh, only lost by 2.8%. Like people in this state are willing to vote for both sides. And, uh, you know, you saw that again in 2018 when Claire McCaskill, our senator, lost by six points. But hey, you know what? The Democrat auditor won by the exact same amount. And so like, like people here, they are willing to look at the person. They're willing to look at the message. They're willing to judge very harshly someone who is incredibly wrong, someone like Eric Greitens. I mean, when Claire McCaskill won in 2012, she won by like 17 points against uh, a guy named Todd Akin, who, uh, who was a complete loon. Like, I'd never discount the people of Missouri. This is a show-me state. Uh, people will make decisions based on the right things when they're given the opportunity to do it. And people are upset right now. They see how the system is broken. And we're pointing out over and over again that the corruption is in the people who are leading the race on the other side. Well, this has been great, Lucas. Uh, we end every episode of the show with the same question. Uh-oh, I guess I should have studied. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tip Connor off either, so don't get mad at him. Um, what's the bravest decision you've ever been a part of? Ooh, wow. That's a hell of a question. I mean, we made a lot of decisions in Afghanistan um, to not engage that were very hard decisions where it was people, you know, who we knew were killing Americans uh, or we suspected it and we just weren't 100% sure. We were worried that collateral damage would be too much. And, uh, you know, a lot of those were pretty hard decisions. Um, and there's just so many stacked up. I think I've seen other people make so many hard decisions that were so brave uh, over there too. And, uh, I don't know. That's really more what's flooding my mind right now. And so, um, I don't know. I don't want to give myself credit for making hard decisions when I've seen so many people make so much harder ones. Yeah. That's the feeling I feel right now. Like, how can I say that I've made a hard decision when I've seen decisions other people have made? It's interesting when I ask the vast majority of veterans that question. It's the same answer. They talk about other people. Um, Lucas, this has been fantastic. Uh, let's do it again. Best of luck in Missouri. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ken. Take care. Thanks again to Lucas for joining me. To learn more about his campaign, visit lucaskunz.com. You can also find him on Twitter at at lucaskunzmo. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.